Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we're talking about impressive wins for Nottingham Forest and Sheffield United and a battling point for Luton Town. We'll also discuss Arsenal, Emma Hayes, and we've got some listener feedback on Manchester United. Joining me, Tom Clark, for all of that, we've got two of the brightest football writers in the country in Alison Rudd and Tom Allnut, and a former footballer who was once praised by Chris Wilder not only for being left-footed, but also for putting in consistent and steady performances. So let's hope he can do the same today. Gregor Robertson is with us too. Hi, Tom. I'm, do you know where I found that from? A YouTube clip of Chris Wilder talking about you being signed after you'd been with them, I think, on loan at Northampton, was it? Or for a brief spell, and then they re-signed you permanently? I joined on a short-term deal yeah. and I left. And then, somewhere and then played so it. well that you got a new deal. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah. But that doesn't happen that, often. <laughs> that was really in the depths of the internet, that. So <laughs> we've hit November and I'm already running low on facts about I your I told career. you this would happen. Listen. I warned you. Yeah. When Tom Clark is arrested for going on the dark web we'll know why yeah. <laughs> he, just, exactly. he just took his research too far yeah, not trying to find anything dodgy just trying to find facts about Gregor Robertson's career um, anyway moving on uh, a team who haven't necessarily put in consistent and steady performances this season are Sheffield United in fact they are a team that we have mentioned on this podcast basically only in a negative manner well boys now's your time to shine because you've got to win uh, and it was a wonderful win. Um, we were looking at some of the pictures of the celebrations uh, yesterday when we were editing the game pages, um, and I picked one of just the team looking completely overjoyed, slightly overwhelmed uh, at Oliver Norwood's late winner. Um, Gregor, you have covered Sheffield United quite a lot in pre-season. You've talked about them quite a lot in terms of their problems off the field. This is a huge win, isn't it, in terms of giving them some hope and a chance to get a victory at this point in the season, while there's still plenty of time still to play. Yeah, I mean, obviously, enormous getting their the first win, particular particularly with the kind of reports that refuse to go away about Chris Wilder waiting in the wings. Um, I don't know. I think if I was Paul Eckenbottom, the the fact that they just don't seem to go away would be getting quite annoying by now. Uh, I think it's annoyed the players. You saw. Ollie Norwood coming out afterward and he said they had they had a kind of players meeting to clear the air after the 5-0 defeat against Arsenal last week um, just to remind a few players or in fact tell a few players because this is we have to remember this is quite a new newly assembled team because of all the all the issues that Sheffield United endured during the summer selling a lot of the best players lone players leaving um, so it was a kind of meeting to say look this is what Sheffield United have stood for for a number of years now, i.e. in your face, pretty combative, aggressive, front foot, all those kind of words. All the words that you've heard Chris Wilder say many times and Paul Hickingbottom kind of took forward as well afterwards. Uh this is what Sheffield United are about. Um so we need to we need to get back to that. And I think I think you saw that. Mm, you saw that with the goals, didn't you? I think there was I mean Cameron Archers was a fantastic finish, but when he was through on goal 
I almost thought he took a touch that wasn't quite the right kind of striker's touch, so he ended up going, sod this, I'm just going to yeah. whack it. Yeah, he and was outside the box yeah. still, but it was kind of one-on-one. You, yeah. know? you think you'd t- continue, but it's a great finish. And he, he's one player who actually you think there's a lot of potential for to be a Premier League player, whether Sheffield United are going to be in the Premier League next year or not. Um, same could be said of Hamer. So there's there have been players that have been they've been trying to bed in and have and there's also been some games a lot of games they've been in and just not had anywhere near the kind of cutting inst- instinct uh, up front I think it was the first shot on target in 200 minutes in the mm, Premier League it was yeah it's incredible mm. stat that is um, and also the kind of managing to concede late goals and you know what happened against Spurs Everton another one you think of where they kind of Jordan Pickford Pulled off that ridiculous double save in, in like the ninety eighth minute or something. So there have been moments like that too, and a lot of them have been at home. And Bram Lane will be big for them too. So I think you just saw the kind of the, the atmosphere that they're going to have to create and the spirit and fight that they're going to have to show to even have anywhere near like half a chance of staying up. Mm-hmm. And we saw it finally in this game. Alison, you've been critical of them in the past, as we have all been critical of the promoted sides. Um, at the start of this season, we kind of started sensing that maybe oh, three up, three straight back down again. But this this does at least show, as Greg has outlined, some of that fighting spirit, which is important not just for them and their fans, but I think for in the media and for neutral fans as well, to, so that they can latch onto them maybe and get behind them a little bit more. Yeah, I haven't been that critical of them actually. In fact, I think I tip them to. For, for Bramall Lane to be a significant factor in possibly offering an escape. You did, you did. But, um, I mean, they're not a very good team. That's just... <laughs> it's very easy when you see... I mean, the photograph that is in the game today, It, it honestly, if you just cut it out and showed it to, you know, a thousand people, what does this picture say? So you say, oh, it's a cup final. Someone's just won a cup final, haven't they? That's what it looks like. And... And in in its own way, that's quite embarrassing, isn't it? That 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 they've had to wait so long to get a victory. They didn't play that well. Uh, Wolves played the attractive football. It was not a penalty, actually. No. So a little. They soft, got a bit of look. A little. It was very very soft. Rarely do you see someone who's supposed to have committed a foul in tears because it was just <laughs> the sheer injustice of it. Um, but. Having said that, if they know who they are and what their limitations are, which I think they do, and they know what they've got going for them, which is an ability to create team spirit, I think it's, I think it's really fantastic that the players have had a chat and feel for their manager, actually. That's that's good. And they have... Um, they, they certainly... They certainly give everything and they're reasonably well organised. Whether it's enough to see them through... Who, who will know? But, I mean, the whole weekend has shown that writing off... I mean, I think everyone thought this season's going to be really boring at the bottom of the table. It's going to be the three promoted sides and Bournemouth fighting for it. And what we've seen is that even though we're in November, it's still possible for one result to make you feel the axis is tilting slightly and all things are possible. I don't know where you go from this though if you're Sheffield United because because they didn't they won without playing particularly well. Do you do you double down on just trying to be as organized as you can and hope for what are you hoping for? Are you hoping that- for result you're hoping for a penalty that isn't a penalty? Are you hoping for 
a freak wonder strike? What are you hoping for? It's I don't know. Are they going to grind it out with lots of lots of nil nils and the odd the odd wacky goal at home? It just it still seems unlikely that the fairy tale's possible. Yeah, but does isn't that slightly um the point I was maybe trying to make and failed with the thing about just added confidence and having that winning feeling. And yes, you are quite right to point out that it did look like a it looked also like a bit like a cup upset. It was FA Cup weekend this weekend. I was looking at that <laughs> picture and thinking, this looks like a small team that's just knocked out the big boys. Yeah. Um but do you not think in terms of the progression of getting to that point where they then maybe start playing better that this needed to happen first? They needed to not play well, get a bit lucky. Oh, you know, radical and, and, you thought, know. you do need to win a game. You no, do but, need to win one game, yeah. But for that, for that, for you to get to that point, they can't just suddenly start playing brilliant football when they've been struggling and beating 8-0 and things. Do you not think they need to at least have that point and that's why they can enjoy it more than maybe being worried no about No problem with them enjoying it whatsoever, but I it's, what is that? Yes, the emotional side of it, fantastic. But if you analyse the match, what what actually will they be building on? They are bu- you can't build on a bad refereeing decision. Spirit, fine, <laughs> well organised, well, well drilled. Well, they conceded late as well, so they were winning the game for a period of time. Um, I think also you look, they were due a bit of, rub, of a rub, rub of the green. Mm. Number of injuries they've had, like big important players, John Egan, their captain, a lot, a lot of players at the back out for months. Uh, and if you look through the games, looking back again, Forrest scored a late winner. Uh, Man City, they 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 played exactly that kind of football. It was like I think they had like twenty percent of the ball, sat in, scored, and then Man City Man City scored a really late winner again. Uh, we know what happened at Tottenham. That was like the latest I think there's ever been a, a victory in the Premier League because of all the added time now. Um, ever and again they could have won it late. Man United, that Dallow scored in like the seventy seventh minute, like a wonder goal. So they've had they've been unlucky. Mm. So I I think they can they can feel entitled to say we deserved a bit of luck in this. And from all the from all those things, those those attributes that I've referenced, the spirit, the fight, and all that stuff, they earned it. Tom, where do you sit on the debate? Not good good win, lads. Glad you glad you got off the mark, but not that impressive or bit of fighting spirit to be impressed by I think Alison's definitely being critical she <laughs> claims that she's never been then she tells poor old Sheffield United it's embarrassing to be celebrating that one win of the season <laughs> I, mean, I think it's entirely fair enough you know I mean these these teams are coming out we, we were talking the last few weeks about how the Premier League looks like it's sort of a 16 team 16 team division and a, a bottom four and and it looked like they're all cut adrift, you know. And Sheffield United get what their first win after eleven games. They're on minus twenty-one goal difference. I mean, if you can't celebrate a victory in injury time, no matter how it comes about, and I, and I take Allison's points, you know that, you know they had what thirty-five percent possession or something. You know they weren't particularly deserving of the win. I think the decision was was soft. I think is a good way to describe. it. I wouldn't say it was a howler. I, you know, I can I can see them given, don't you think? I mean, he, you know, he put his foot in there. He was a little bit. Didn't get much of the ball. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, it wasn't probably wasn't a penalty, but I don't think it's something you would look back on in a few weeks and say that was you know a, a terrible decision. Certainly, seen Mo Salah win the odd one every now and again. Hey, it was a dive. Let's <laughs> be honest, it was a dive. It was a dive. He made he made more of it than it was. No doubt about that. But you know, th- these things sometimes teams can look dead and buried in the first few weeks, and it takes a while for them to to adjust to the Premier League. You know, to find their feet. And what what with what Gregor said up working bottom as well. You know, I think. In a way, sometimes results and victories they do shift momentum, they do shift belief, and it's it's all very well to kind of say what what can we see here with the Sheffield United team they actually can kind of cling on to for the next few weeks. But 
But sometimes results dictate that. You know, when you look at Manchester United, you have a really good team and the results are dictating the way very good players are playing. And it can it can work the other way around. You know, you can have a result like this, slightly fortunate, yes, but the lift that it gives the club, the, the belief it, it, it instills in the manager suddenly, that can suddenly make five, six out of ten players play like seven or eight out of ten players and that can make a big difference. This this isn't a Premier League team. Like Alison's right, they aren't you look at this team on paper and you look at the they they aren't Premier League players, a lot of them. But mm. they they kinda never were, even when Chris Wilder had them up, you know, with a kind of you know, I think what did they finish? Ninth? Something like that? Mm. They 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 had a real structure and they had a, a kind of mentality that got them results. And Heckenbottom did something very similar with to get them promoted. Uh, and it was ripped up in the summer, and he's he's been battling to try and get them kind of organised and and you know a, a group of players that know what he wants from them again. Because even I remember when I when I went up there before the, the week before the season started, one of the things you know you think about you lose and die and Berg and a lot of it was goals. That was the two biggest chance chance creators I think. Uh, and he he actually turned around when I asked him about that. And he said they they were also two of our best pressers like they. We, we pressed really aggressively from the front so it's not just the, the chance creation and the goals it's the way we defend Like, and that was true of the other players that went Tommy Doyle McAtee McAtee came back and he was he came on the second half and he was brilliant in this game but he arrived on deadline day it was like and Doyle was was was, uh, was in the Wolves team so that was you know he should have been in the Sheffield United team they would have hoped uh, so I I, I I still think they're, they've got a massive like uphill struggle to, to stay up but Seeing this, that kind of organisation spirit again, I think will give them huge, huge sort of belief and and uh, just a real boost for the for the weeks to come. A quick word on Wolves because what this does is, you know, doesn't bring them closer or things like that. You know, they've they've been playing well, but it is a kind of re- reminder for Gary O'Neill that this is this is not as easy as maybe sometimes when he's on Monday Night Football talking about how to beat Pep Guardiola, <laughs> should we say? Um, because they missed a lot of chances again. It's still an issue for them. Um, is this a kind of reminder that this is their limitations? They're 14th at the minute with 12 points. Spring some surprises against some big teams. Maybe be upset, if we like, against uh, the likes of Sheffield United, Alison. It's a reminder that they're heavily reliant on Neto for their, the, that X factor of what makes them a, a difficult team to face. I think he's had a phenomenal season so far. And I don't know. Does anyone know when he's back? Because, I mean, that that's key. That's so key. He's just he's just astonishing, and no team has actually found a way to keep him quiet. And I think possibly a combination of not having your best player there, um, and knowing that you've struggled to score, probably contributed to this defeat. But well, I mean, there's a lot of shouting about VAR this season, but I think in total, Wolves have been the club that have suffered the most from very controversial, unfair decisions for them. You know, you could be talking nine, maybe more points that, that have gone for them after some good performances. This wasn't a bad performance. This was this was this was a combination of missing your best player, VAR going against you, and having that problem that most clubs that aren't very, very, very wealthy have, which is you, you, you need to spend money on people who can finish and most clubs don't have that. I think they'll be absolutely fine, though. And um, I don't know. It used to be manager of the month was a curse. Is being invited onto Monday Night Football now the new <laughs> the new thing that makes things bad? Uh, Thomas Frank proved that it isn't. Oh well, there we go. But it's an interesting the, theory. The similarities to with that penalty to the one that Huang 
that that a couple of weeks ago were, were remarkable though kind of both aware that we're just about to make a fill in the penalty to make a fill in the penalty box stopping and still the player going over and buying the foul it's like yeah I agree with Alison I think them and Brighton have had a few as well, but Wolves have had some real stinkers in recent weeks. I mean, Arteta needs to have a look at himself. Well, we'll come on to Mikel Arteta's comments about VAR a little bit later on. But moving on, another team we haven't given too much praise to are Nottingham Forest. Um, as I said, I was editing our football coverage this weekend and I thought they were one of the standout performances. It was a brilliant performance in their win against Aston Villa. We'll talk a little bit about Villa and Unai Emery later on. Gregor, I asked you the other week briefly about how you felt Forest, your old team, had been performing this season. Um this was a kind of classic Steve Cooper performance, wasn't it? Impressive, pre- impressive pressing. That's much harder to say <laughs> than, it's, than I thought in my head. From the front, and a lot of players really stepping up. Um, I thought Ola Anna's finish was absolutely brilliant, brilliant wasn't it? Yeah. And Harry Toffolo, someone that I know from playing for Lincoln, who when they signed for the Premier League, I thought he's not. I'm not sure he's quite good enough for the Premier League, but actually he was brilliant. Man of the match, two assists. It feels like a little bit of the kind of madness is a little bit calmed down and they're focusing on the football yeah although I mean if you if you kind of took the temperature at the city ground before this one there were you know there was the kind of reports were saying Maranakis is here he's come over he's come over from Greece they've not won in six games he wants to understand why a positive start to the season has kind of started to look a bit shaky you know none of this is helpful and it's always there it's always kind of it's always either <laughs> very close to you know, to be in this this sort of cloud, this sort of over overarching sort of uh, weight of pressure, because you know Maranakis is hugely ambitious, but he he's he's it's it's not helpful. It's not helpful to Cooper. It's not helpful to the squad. So, you know, the fans fans don't feel any of this. They they are absolutely behind Steve Cooper, but there was pressure. I read one report. It was saying you know Steve Cooper's name was trending on on Twitter after the game, and not for that reason. You know, it's like there were fears that you know. He, he could be sacked at any moment. So, um, but having said that, they've you know they've had they've they hadn't won at the, at the city ground for a while. They'd had draws, you know, draws against Luton the last time where they were two 0 up, and they've they have kind of although they've been positive performances, they've just not got the uh, the points to show for it. And as you say, they really tried to they tried to press high, but they also tried to exploit Villa's high line. And I remember watching Villa against Chelsea, and it's like it's. It's extraordinary to watch <laughs> the kind of anxiety you must feel when you're a Villa defender sometimes because you're running back just hoping and praying that the flag's going to come. And often it does because they're good at it. They're actually good at it. You know, Forrest had a few chances where you... And you think, but still the kind of the feeling that you have is, oh, Villa, you know, <laughs> they're, they're, they're uh, treading a fine line here, but they're very good at it. So Forrest still tried to exploit that, playing balls in behind for Awanyi and Alanga and, and Gibbs-White. Um, and as you say, the finish uh, by Aino uh, was was exquisite. And highlighting him is is sort of underlines the job that Steve Cooper has had to do, right? So since they've been promoted, they signed Neko Williams right back, Sergio Aurea right back, Montiel four right backs of, among their their forty odd signings, thirteen this summer, forty overall. And so when you th- you know when there's chop and you know, there's chopping and changing, and you wonder how he's you know, how he chooses his best team like it's just been a constant process for him ever since they've been promoted and you look at Ayn and you think why have you not seen more of him why Why is he you know he looked, he looked brilliant because they've signed so many players and maybe some some are get, p- picking up injuries and not getting a good run in the team same with Toffolo he's had his injury troubles 
if they can get a settled side, and they've got they know we know that Cooper uh, Forest under Cooper have a, a really solid structure, then I think it could be a positive season for them. Like kind of pushing to be in the top half of the table. Yeah. The most the most impressive thing I think about the Forest performance was how, given everything you've just outlined there, Gregor, is how they looked like a proper unit and they looked like a team and they looked like they were fighting for each other and they understood each other's runs. They looked like they'd been playing that starting 11 a lot when they haven't and that that's an incredible achievement from a manager I think yeah, to have so absolutely. many changes and yet to look like everyone slots in it's interesting because I thought exactly that watching the game to the point where I spoke to Opta this morning to ask for the stats thinking oh well they'll have, they've had much set more settled side this season that must, must be what it is total players used this season 27 Nottingham Forest the most of any team exactly uh, total starting 11 changes uh, 26 Nottingham Forest third behind Manchester City and Brighton Compared that to last season, they're actually higher in both tables than they were last season. And I thought, I was as I say, Alison, I watched that game thinking these guys must really know each other. They yeah. must, and you know, because I've not been paying as much attention to Forest in recent weeks, but actually, it's still all the same things they were dealing with last season, which is, as you say, incredibly impressive. Tom, where do you think Forest lie here in terms of, particularly maybe in relation to our conversation around Sheffield United and Burnley and Luton and the teams that came up? Because last season they slightly filled that that role of, oh God, they're never going to pull this off. Slightly for different reasons because they were spending so much money. Where do you think they sit now in the kind of table of how fans think of them? I really like Murillo as well, the centre-back. I'm yes. Corinthians, he's made a big difference. Yeah. There's been a bit of uncertainty in, in defence of who the kind of best pairing is and he's just come in there and I think made a, made a big difference. At 21 years old, I think Napoli were really interested in the summer. It really kind of speaks to... The kind of dominance of the Premier League, obviously, that a club like Forest can sort of lure these these Brazilian defenders from from South America, you know, and they're very young, very highly rated in Europe, and they just want to basically play in the Premier League. And even if that's a stepping stone to one of the, the bigger teams, so be it. Um, I mean, I think Forest will be fine. You know, I, I I think you know the idea, the only way that they could mess it up is if they sack Steve Cooper, I guess. You know, if they, if they decide that they need to make a change and bring in someone else, and then suddenly you've got a huge squad of players and you've got a new coach who. Who has no idea, you know, who the best ones are, and you have to rip the whole thing up and start again. With Cooper, I think they'll be fine. They'll be in that kind of group of teams between about sort of ninth and fifteenth. We're talking about Wolves as well in that kind of that kind of that kind of area. You know, I think they're strong enough at home, and I think with Cooper, they've got enough organisation and enough about them that they they're not going to get pulled into that bottom four. I mean, you know, there's no way that I see them in the same kind of category as Sheffield United, for example. Interesting, Gregor, agree? Yeah, no, I absolutely. I'm I'm just always scared for Steve Cooper. I always have been. You always are. Have been. You're all very, always very worried about. But the, because you look around, even look around them. Like I've so many reports about, so we, all the injury troubles, the, the 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 hierarchy, like sack people and bring in a new head of performance, um, all all this all this all the all the signings like this, this plethora of signings and they go this hasn't been done very well. They sack they sack the kind of director of football, bring in a new like sporting director. Ross Wilson's in the latest one, I think. Um, so like this is all going on around them as well. Like it, it, it's like they've they've kind of resisted this urge, or they've just not been able to find someone at the right time to replace Steve Cooper. Like uh, I'm convinced that they've wanted to do it on a number of occasions, and it's it's just not a good environment for them. So he needs to, you know, if he if he if he gets enough results and kind of they they are around the, the the middle, you know, or top half of the table, then that kind of eases all that that conversation. Otherwise, it's always going to be there. 
Mm. On to Aston Villa. Um, I was speaking to Charlotte Dunker, who was at the game, and when she rang in from the press conference, I was quite surprised by Unai Emery's comments. It sounded a little bit stroppy and less composed than normal. Today was a key moment, he said. We could really be a contender in the top seven teams. We have lost that opportunity. Uh, we had chances, and usually at home we are scoring them, but we didn't today. Is that just a case of they've been on a good run and this is a bit of a bubble burst, or is he actually speaking truth there that actually they might struggle for top seven? Because to me, this didn't feel like... It felt like a dip, maybe off the back of you know Europa League hangovers and things, but it didn't feel like a real dis- dis- disjointed no, I I, performance. Yeah, I suspect he was discombobulated and a bit cross because he didn't see it coming. Because uh, Villa didn't really look like Villa and they didn't get out of third gear I don't think they didn't look like scoring they looked to quite me quite flat hmm. and unable to lift to respond to what they were facing um, and if you've if you've gone through the prep and we all know Emery is really into the fine detail and you've gone through it all and pointed out what, you know where the threats will come from what you have to put cope with and so on and they just don't as a coach there's very little you can do except hope that your words afterwards are, you know, enough to shake people up and make them think, oh, hang on a minute, maybe we'll be, we, we were starting to, you know, read the good reviews and believe we were rather special. Because there's been a lot of nice stuff about Villa, not just on the game. I mean, everywhere. People have been gushing about him, the job he's done, how he's found the right place, aren't they lucky to have him. Villa fans, they just stack the phone-ins with how much they adore what he's doing for them and sometimes subconsciously that and you're you know you're in a game you're expected to win that can subconsciously mean you just don't find that ability to to raise your level because Villa are let's remember they are generally playing above themselves and if you just allow yourself to be who you are and not give it that extra whatever percent it is they can look quite ordinary that's why he's cross. Tom, would you agree with that statement based on Unai Emery, you know, someone that you followed in Spanish football before? Is it is this a little bit tactical or is it a bit stroppy? I think I sort of agree with Alison. I think he's probably um, trying to burst the bubble a little bit. You know, he probably thinks that maybe the players are starting to believe their own hype a little. Um, Emery doesn't tend to be someone who kind of explodes in press conferences after matches. He usually kind of goes on long kind of... Would say rants, but sort of lectures about tactical systems and things, and everyone kind of switches off. And <laughs> <laughs> it's quite a clever way of, of distracting. Um, so I, I wonder if he was was yeah frustrated. Um, you know, I think after matches, managers always say things sometimes that they don't mean, and and you know, that can that can obviously happen. But I, I do think that he probably looked at the performance and and saw that it lacked a bit of energy, a bit of zip, and maybe he he, he started to think that his players are starting to believe their own hype a little. But I mean, equally. You know, this is what defines teams that kind of finish between third and eighth. You know, this is why they are what they are. They do lose the odd game away from home against against teams when they play well. You know, they're obviously not super consistent all the time, and I think that's where Villa are going to be. You know, they're going to win three or four, and then and then lose the odd one as well. And this doesn't mean they're not a good team. I, I don't think it means they're not going to be in, in the race for the top four at the end of the season. I think they're right there. You know, they've got a good squad, but it does depend on people like Watkins taking his chances. You know, and he didn't in this game. He had two or three really good chances and missed them. And and I think those fine margins are there. They haven't got the players necessary to bring on to make a big difference. They're relying on on those two or three key players making the difference in those matches, and it can happen. But I think um, 
this doesn't this doesn't change my mind about what Villa are. I think they've got a great chance of finishing in, in those European spots. Also, Martinez threw in the second. He did. And yeah. it gave Forrest something to hold on to. So. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't it wasn't their best day, but I don't think, you know they've been an incredible run. Uh, and Tom's right. That's kind of that's why they're in that group of clubs chasing to try to kind of get into the elite elite pack. Um, they're not quite there yet. Now, one team we have discussed in a great deal uh, in recent weeks, Manchester United. So I don't want to mention their win uh, against Fulham in too much detail because we've talked about them a lot. But Alison, you were there. Um, I wanted to ask first how Eric Ten Hag seemed in the press conferences after the game. Did he seem like a man relieved? Did he seem like a man still on the brink? It's hard to tell with him. He's so impassive. I find him deeply unimpressive in press conferences and on the touchline, actually. Um I, I don't Do you say that as a journalist or as someone looking for character from a man needed for a big job? I'm genuinely, you know, because we, you know, there are lots of people I find unimpressive because they don't <laughs> give good quotes. As a, an, an editor, I'm like, that's a rubbish quote. I can't get anything out ah, of that. Ah, okay. Yeah. But, but are you talking as a football fan looking for something, you know, big, a bigger both. meaning? Both. Journalistically, he doesn't say very much of interest at all. And in terms of just liking football and wanting to see how teams are put together and who's in charge of them, he's unimpressive and I struggle to see how he can be that different in the dressing room when he's trying to get them going or whatever it is he does I mean I think he's probably quite an intellectual manager and his forte is not doing rousing speeches but he's uh, he's so I mean he, he was playing politics afterwards because you know the questioning was you must be very pleased with the win, but perhaps you understood that the performance wasn't quite there. You know, people were trying to tease it out of him, and he wasn't—he wasn't—he wasn't really answering at all. He called it a solid performance. I mean, he was deliberately batting it away and refusing to engage in the bigger dialogue, which is what is wrong with Manchester United. And didn't you get very lucky to to win a game where you were not the best team on the pitch? So he—I and I find his touchline demeanour peculiar. Really strange, and then there was. What do you want from him more? Because he is—he's quite passive, isn't he? He's the incredibly com- passive, contemplative. That's not journalist, just journalist, by the way. I mean, he interviewed—I think it was—it was he interviewed for Tottenham, a Tottenham job. I can't remember which one. Now, there've been so many in the last two or three years, and, and they basically decided that he didn't have the kind the of pizzazz, charisma and the yeah, pizzazz to yeah. kind of survive in the Premier League. You know, they, they thought, oh, he's a good coach, but he just didn't come across well. You know, and I, you can see that, right? Well, see, so so at Craven Cottage, you the. Um, the 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 away fans they were they were great they made their protest with a sheet saying play like you mean it and but for, for most of it they were very supportive and when they scored their very late winner there was a commu- a communal thing going on the, the all the players all the united players went to the away fans and it was proper mad hysteria we love you and we love you back, crazy stuff. And you think, ah, oh, well, okay, there's something still there for all the problems there are at Manchester United and all the disquiet amongst the fan base for what's going on with the ownership. There is still this incredible connection between the fans and the team and the sense that they have, the players, most of them do feel the connection and that they're playing for a big club and they were, they were, absolutely delighted and so on not shamefaced at all that they just grabbed a winner they did not deserve <laughs> you're not going to be uh, shamefaced when you score a no but you know sometimes score. sometimes teams have don't quite go as berserk as that when they're okay. a big club like man united 
And you just feel that they haven't got on the touchline a manager who is buying into any of that at all. That for he could have the team lack lack they lack pizzazz on the pitch and that has to be a reflection of him, I feel. Like you sort of get the impression that not everyone playing believes in the system. Like, um it's a very good question to ask, is is why why did he start with Anthony? Because Anthony gave nothing except fuel to people who think that Ten Hag has favourites, fuel to the fans to feel embarrassed, fuel to the away fans to boo him because of what's going on in his private life. And he did nothing. He was overwhelmed by being booed. He he was slow. He didn't look like he was particularly interested. He made Anthony Robinson, the Fulham fullback, look twice as fast as he normally looks. He is quite fast, but he looked extra fast and extra clever and was able to play some neat stuff because he wasn't bothered by Anthony whatsoever. It's And you think, oh, OK, well, but who do there's, you a, there's a disconnect here between getting a team out on the pitch that everyone believes in and making them feel passionate about playing for Manchester United. It's as if he's almost technically above it and can't quite believe he's reduced to having to play on the break. Well, before who, be, okay, you go. Who you do go. United have that that you know are impressive in these areas? I know we, we keep talking about uh, in wide areas or generally. Well, come on, we could talk about generally, but we'll just talk about like that front four. Like we keep saying, why did he play him? And then when he plays someone else, it's like he doesn't. He's not offered much. And but the Anthony one, the Anthony one is back to Ten Hag because he signed him know, and he's the second most expensive we'll player ever. Many times, and you know, that's so that be is, the biggest stick to beat him with. Absolutely. So. But there's also, you know, he wants them to to be the player that he signed. He he, he wants them to do it. He wants them. To, we want to see a a burst of life and hope it comes at some point. And maybe fool him away. It didn't. So like again, it's another reason to to slag him off. But and also just on his like demeanour, you know, it wasn't that long ago that everyone was saying, you know, who's who's this, you know, we've got they've got a professional now. After after the guy who should never have had the job in Ollie, they've got someone who's a a proper coach. After they won the cup, people were saying he was going to build a dynasty. So, like a few months down the line, I think to suddenly flip it around and say that he looks like, like he doesn't know what he's doing on the touchline, or he's well, I've never he's not thought got, he looks like he he's not got any he's not got any he's not got the right kind of pizzazz. I'd, I think I think there are, again there are f- far bigger problems at Manchester United than Eric Ten Hag. Well, we are in a dangerous territory of falling back into Thursday's debate, heated debate around <laughs> Manchester United, which was uh, a very interesting discussion, and it prompted uh, Martin Ralph, a Manchester United fan, to get in touch to say, Tom, you asked on the recent podcast for United fans to speak up, and he then sent a very long and interesting uh, explana- explainer of his thoughts. I'm going to read a few bits of it just to give him the final word. How to fix it, to adapt the old Irish joke, if I wanted to fix United, I wouldn't start from here. Everything is wrong, I fear it is unfixable as it stands and it will take many years to recover from. He said this about Eric Ten Hag, which I think leans more towards your point, Gregor. Um, if, the, if the Glazers don't go, nothing nothing will change for the good. Swapping Ten Hag, who admittedly now seems to be in some sort of death spiral, will do no real good. An immediate uplift from the, and then the cycle kicks back in. Uh, the rumours that Ten Hag is too much of a disciplinarian and too hard in training, these things emanated from the dressing room before his appointment when it was revealed that the squad wanted Pochettino. Who would have been a softer touch? The squad really don't like running, as we see in every game. So there you go, Gregor. I think you've got some support in the kind of 
From from the listeners there. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, Martin, thank you very much for getting in touch. And if you are a fan of any team, doesn't have to be Manchester United, you can get in touch with me, tom.clark at thetimes.co.uk. If you want to share an opinion or have a moan that we've not mentioned your team or suggest the topic for the future. But we've got more topics to come on this show. Stick with us. Up next, we're talking Luton, Liverpool and Arsenal, Newcastle. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome back to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. I'm Tom Clark and I'm joined by Alison Rudd, Gregor Robson and Tom Allnut to Kenilworth Road. And Luton, another promoted side who we can be impressed by. Alison Rudd is rolling her eyes just because we know she knows we're about to slag off Liverpool for being absolutely rubbish and getting away with a lucky point against the mighty Luton. Um, but we are going to talk about Luton. Um, Gregor, they, like Sheffield United, showed a lot of the characteristics that we had talked about before the start of the yeah. season and the things that you had wanted to see and that you had quite rightly said look these guys are going to have a chance because they have got a lot of these characteristics and I, th- I thought they were brilliant I think the game plan which seemed to be let's get to half time and then have a go worked brilliantly didn't it yeah we also saw you know all the all the kind of that whole narrative about kind of road we can I think it's probably the first time we really saw a bit of a, you know an evening kickoff um Against a big team like Liverpool, uh, you know, I think it was the first time in 15 years that they'd been there, and the sort of the whole kind of the idea about their home form being so important, not just about about the way they play, but also about the the atmosphere and the location and everything about Kenilworth Road. So, I think this is the first time we really saw that. But I get, I kind of will sort of draw some parallels with Sheffield United. Like again, this is not a team that really is a Premier League team, um, and they've got a massive uphill struggle, but. There've been a lot of games that they've been in, and been their game plan has been pretty similar. It's been about, about trying to be, you know, compact and disciplined, and play on the break. And they've often been, you know, pretty good at it. I think they've got some really good ball carriers. Look, Benny, brilliant. Uh, Tyth Chong as well, who comes on, he's great at carrying the ball forward. And Morris is brilliant at holding up. So they have they have a kind of. I thought Doughty at left wing back as well looked kind of quite brave a lot of times. I think there was a moment where he almost knocked Darwin Nunes or someone right near his own goal and then brought it out through midfield in a very kind of like modern fullback wing back type way. Yeah, I saw a stat about him the other day. It was like he's one of the most, you know, one of the most kind of creative footballers in the league, uh, players in the league in the Premier League. Like his his passing is, is leading towards more chances than than most players in the league. He's he's been brilliant. Um, and they signed another left back for like six million as well in the summer from Wolves. So, um, yeah, like they, they have and Kabori as well on the other side. I remember saw him in the opening day at Brighton, and he's kind of on loan from he's on loan from from Man City, a real athlete. Um, but again, as, as I say, they've they've done this in other games. They're just not always, and they could again they could have lost this game. It's the same as Sheffield United and Wolves. The number of chances that Liverpool missed, Nunes in particular, it was like everyone's just started to talk about him being. You know, reaching these new heights, and then he's like, "Hold my beer, guys!" and and, and, and miss some absolute whoppers. Um, 
so they could, it could have been different, but they stayed in the game. And as I say, they had players who, in those little mo- the the way that Barkley kind of instead of just hooking it clear, manipulate the bit of space on the edge of the box and carried it forward, and then his pass was perfectly weighted. That was a bit of class. That was like mm. if they get him, if they get him firing as well, he could be that kind of the link player, the kind of conduit between that block, that defensive block, and playing forward quickly. Um, and also getting a bit, you know, Andros Townsend coming to the team, a bit experienced too, because they had none. So, yeah, huge, hugely positive. It could have been better for them, obviously, if they'd won the game, but um, another big night for a team that everyone was really writing off, I think. Alison, we'll, we will discuss Liverpool, but uh, trying to discuss Luton without thinking about your team. Um, obviously, it's important to say as well, Greg is quite rightly highlighting the atmosphere at uh, Kenilworth Road, but there was some incredibly yes. disappointing chants heard from the uh, Luton Town fans, um, which Henry Winter mentions in his match report, which is headlined, Tragedy chants stir poison into the host's passion. Um, but in terms of the performance, Alison, were you impressed by Luton? Yeah, no, I was, actually. I just did the yeah-no thing that everyone does in <laughs> football, didn't I? Because um, I'm feeling very stressed about talking about the game. Really. <laughs> I I was impressed. But... So the way I watched it was I watched it with my children and <laughs> they were they were teasing me right from the start. You you wouldn't mind mum, if if Andros, Andros Townsend Townsend scored a great goal would you? No obviously I wouldn't mind. No you, know, you wouldn't mind mum if Luton got a bit of glory. No no it's fine it's fine. And um I kept thinking this good start by Luton will dissipate. No they their growing in confidence. I was very impressed. I was impressed with how organised they were, how they didn't seem starstruck at all. They didn't wobble at the fact, you know, live game, big team that's uh, been playing incredibly well. They looked, they had bags of self-confidence. So I was, I was impressed. I was prepared for Liverpool to concede. I felt, I, I do feel Liverpool will often. And, um, that that was fine, but I probably if I had to to pick out what impressed me the most, it was the 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 character of the team that they they believed they could get something, and it wasn't um it wasn't a smash and grab sort of game really. I know Liverpool had more chances and more possession, but the composure and some there was some elegance on the ball as well that. It didn't feel like one of those upsets where, oh, you know, these things happen. It felt deserved that they would get a point from it. They, they, it was it was more than just the fact they had the home fans there. I felt I felt Rob Edwards has been working. You have to decide, don't you? If it's not going that well for you when you're in a new division, do you just keep going, a la Burnley? blindly just keep going or do you feel there are signs of progress and I think Luton have shown that by sticking to their principles and their plan and having faith in their more creative players that they they can get something from it and they can take a lot more from this result albeit only a draw than I think Sheffield United can from theirs because there's actual stuff to build on. You can substa- you can see substance, substantive elements of football and character and style and tactics and belief. And they looked they looked well. They did. They looked like a mid-table team, not like a team that everyone thinks is going to go down. I was impressed. 
Tom, in terms of Liverpool, we talked about Aston Villa and Unai Emery in terms of you know maybe taking the eye off the ball a little bit. Jurgen Klopp made changes to his team. Was this a little bit of a case of maybe giving your players the sense that this one's won already a little bit? Maybe. I, I don't know if I got the sense of kind of complacency. I mean, I just think... I don't know, coming back to Darwin again, but you know, missing those chances. I mean, we really sort of felt like this might be kind of him turning a corner, but still in those kind of you know pressure moments, whether in the tight areas around the box, he just doesn't seem to have that kind of killer instinct. I always think he, he almost is, kind of rushes those chances. He doesn't have that ability that the real top strikers have, just to sort of take a moment and be able to kind of instill some calm into that kind of real panicked moment. He seems to rush things, you know. And, I remember speaking to someone when he first arrived, and they and they sort of who, who knew him quite well and sort of looked at him before, and he just sort of said that things are done. He'll do everything very well in terms of the running and and the intensity and his physicality is excellent. But just surprised that a club like Liverpool would have signed him because those um, those sort of abilities aren't always that coachable. You know that it was obvious that that was his big weakness, and even now a year or what's it been two two years on, you know we're still kind of talking about his. His lack of kind of composure and finishing, um, but perhaps it was just one of those games. You know, if we're being fair on him, perhaps let's see. You know, maybe he's he, you know on a, on a kind of longer run where we see a, a different Darwin Nunes. But I thought that was really crucial. Obviously, the Luis Diaz thing at the end was was very kind of pertinent and you know and incredible really that he that he played and that he came on and that he scored the goal and and fair play for, to Klopp I think for managing that situation like that, understanding you know what the kind of the player wanted and and was able to was able to do um i mean i think on on liverpool this is i agree with gregor i mean we, we talked a lot about kenilworth road you know and actually in reality it hasn't quite been what everyone was sort of writing about you know at the beginning of the season perhaps this was the first the first night where where a team went there and and found it very difficult um i think it's a it's it's a possible starting point for luton for liverpool i think it's just a dip i think i, I see them coming back pretty strongly in fairness to darwin like paul joyce wrote a piece at the weekend highlighting that i think he's had a goal contribution every 60 minutes so far. I think it was only, I think it was the second highest in Europe. So he's had a good season. Oh, yeah, <laughs> we just saw it was a bad day. It was like, but it was that kind of thing. It was just as everyone was starting to write those pieces and have, and have that conversation. Is he suddenly, is he fight, is he kind of, he's stepping up to be the main man this season? Then he kind of did that. Um, yeah. So it was unfortunate, but he's, he still had a great season. You're quite right. We have jinxed absolutely everyone on the Time Sports desk in recent weeks. <laughs> we were discussing this before the show. We've done a piece on Darwin Nunes, and he misses a, basically an open goal. We've done a piece about how there could be a five-team title race, and basically everyone's dropped points about Man- apart from Manchester City, who win 6-1. Uh, and we've talked about how great Aston Villa are, and then they lose at Nottingham Forest. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm sorry for that, uh, all the football fans What's out next? there. What's next? Yeah, who knows what <laughs> next? Maybe we need to say City have won the title already and start doing our pieces and see if that can uh, get things a bit more exciting. Because one of those teams who dropped points were Arsenal at Newcastle, losing the game 1-0. The game became far more about Mikel Arteta and his comments afterwards and the management of Arsenal and uh, that kind of emotion that we've discussed so many times. We've got a couple of pieces on the Times website at the moment which people are reading uh, in their numbers. One of them is Martin Samuel, whose intro is VAR is not the reason Arsenal sit fourth this morning, but their manager, Mikel Arteta, might just be. And another piece from Martin Hardy, which discusses Kai Havertz and that slightly brainless tackle, which I think probably should have been a red card, do we think? Quick Mm. quick show of hands. Yeah, absolutely. It's a red card. Yes. I think it's one of those so ambers. It's an orange from Gregor. Yeah, there you uh, go. Uh, orange. Oh, okay. classic. Uh, at least Alison's a former referee, so I think, that at least I think, adds some I think Bruno's could have been. There's not really much mitigation for that. 
Well, we'll see. We yeah, can get an off the ball. Yeah. That yeah. was an off the that, ball incident. Yeah. Like um, that was more surprising to me. Yeah. Well, we can get into that. But I think Martin Hardy's piece makes an interesting point in terms of it, he was discussing the piece with um, me and Joe, my colleague on the editing desk yesterday, and was saying that he felt um, Arsenal just lost lost sight of the idea that they could beat Newcastle at football and decided to have a fight with them instead. And how brainless that seemed to go to St James's Park on a kind of wet and windy no- November night and decide to pick a fight with one of the teams that are best at having a fight in the Premier League. It just seemed completely off kilter from Mikel Arteta. But Martin's piece talks about Arteta's slight obsession with proving that Arsenal can have a fight and can win. <laughs> and then they're not just the fancy team who play beautiful football. Tom, what do you think of that kind of assessment of Arteta and his management and where he's at now with Arsenal? I think the best teams go to these kind of games and they they impose control and they take the take the heat and the sting out of it. You know, if you see City and and the way they approach these these kind of matches, Guardiola's obsession is always with control of the ball and to try and dominate the match and and not to kind of stoke the fire. I mean, the the Havertz challenge was really reminiscent, I thought, of the Chaka, the Granite Xhaka challenge on Alexander Arnold, you know, at Anfield, you know, and which turned that game around, which basically. turned that game around, and even you know the title race in a way. Um, I just think Arsenal should have should have realised they're a better football team than Newcastle. They've got better football players, and if they'd if they'd played the the game where they keep the ball and they and they create chances and they defend properly, then they could have got something out of the game. And actually, I think it does come down to Arteta. We've been talking about this for a long time now, where his emotional state on the on the sideline I think does create something in the team where they feel a certain sense of indignance and a certain sense of um, high emotional state all the time and sometimes you know I think it's of course if you win games last minute winners and we we're talking about Ten Hag earlier so you know we can't have it always then of course I think you know there is something in that in, in the kind of big celebrations and the big the big statements but I think to to kind of always be so um uptight so so sort of passionate unhinged almost on the touchline i think it does create a sense in the team especially when you've got a young and very sort of malleable team like arsenal's we've got a lot of players who haven't necessarily been in these kind of situations before i really think it does sort of filter down and if we're talking about kind of the refereeing thing afterwards you know and, and his reaction i mean we're, we're in november you know and they lost one nil to newcastle they're still in a good position in the league and he's talking about it as though you know it was it was an absolute howler and we'll get into that maybe I, I didn't personally think it was I didn't think there was much in it you know I mean it was ultimately what we're asking for from VAR you know we're asking for them not to intervene in decisions where where it's slightly you know not absolutely clear cut I didn't think it was a clear cut foul you can maybe think it was or it wasn't 60-40 either way but it wasn't clear cut and the other two <laughs> it couldn't decide so if you can't you can't ask VAR to guess so I mean, what what do you want from the decision? It's almost like it, just because there were three, there was a, cumul- a cumulative, you know, frustration there, and that's why he was he was so angry about it. Yeah. But I'm just going to interrupt you there. Cause I agree with you completely, your assessment. But just you, Alison and Gregor, in terms of those decisions and what Mikel Arteta was so upset about in VAR, what do you, what was your quick view on those kind of three moments? Well, I mean, it it it, it is slightly odd and possibly embarrassing is the right word that you invest so much money into assistant referee technology and you don't know if the ball's crossed the the line or not because you haven't bothered putting enough technology in for that when it it definitely exists it's just stupid why not just do that can't draw the lines because there's a of the way players are stood well we all know there are goal mouth scrambles why don't you devise a system which allows you to see if someone is offside or not it's it's unacceptable i think to say Oh, we just can't see in that instance. It's ridiculous. And also, we've got into a mess now 
in how uh, it works in terms of um, taking the on-field decision and what they're seeing in Stockley Park. They're, it, it's almost as if they're, t- they're taking, just don't want to look at something that might be 60-40 because they don't want to go against what the on-field decision was. But isn't the whole point of looking at a goal and the incident, there is, there's either a foul or there isn't. And that was a clear foul. So I can see, I can see why he's cross because there's there's three separate, completely separate reasons why, what might have ruled it out did not rule it out. And because you're quite right, Tom, the cumulative effect of that probably got, and the amount of minutes it took probably made him extra cross. But I, it it did. I do I do understand why he said the word embarrassing because it just makes the system look a bit amateurish and shoddy. Gregor. Just on the on the decisions, we'll come back to Arteta and the wider implications. No, I'm with Tom. I like when you look at it at, at the ball, one on the touchline. First of all, yeah, you can see that the ball's over the touchline. But we all know now, as the that World Cup picture, that famous front page of the game, which you might have done with you on that day, where it was like an aerial shot of the the game was it Japan against Germany. Yeah, yeah. The ball can look like it's out, but if it's overhanging, which and there was no. As Alison said, there's no technology to tell us right or wrong, so you've got to let that go. That's one. The offside doesn't look offside. I don't care about drawn being lines. Drawn uh, lines being drawn doesn't look offside to me. And even if it did, like I've spoken, how this whole wormhole has got me into a place where, like offsides, feel like they should be subjective now to me. <laughs> anyway, uh, and the foul, it didn't look like a foul when when it was played at, at full speed. And anything you slow down when you look at someone, just because someone's got two hands on someone's back doesn't mean it's a foul. doesn't mean it's a push. Mm. I don't think that was enough either. So, And that's, I, the, that's I, the defender's union. Because I thought it was interesting with the uh, Luis, Luis Diaz goal for Luton, uh, for Luton, for Liverpool against Luton. There was a similar kind of freeze frame of when we were looking at the pictures yesterday where he's kind of got his arms and body in the back of the Luton defender. And obviously that wasn't a foul. G- Gabriel stooped to head it. Yeah. So if someone's stooping, you you and you're the player player behind them. You want you're always it's a contact sport. You want to feel where they are. You put your hands there, and even if that even if that kept him like slightly down, slightly delayed his his motion to flick up, that's not a foul. Not a foul. It's not Fine. A foul. I think that's two one. Uh, I think in terms of the VAR. Well, where are you? Where are you? I think I slightly sit with the lads on this one, Alison. I'm afraid. Um, overall, I think for these decisions, I think I probably I I can take your point about the technology not being good enough. Um, and that that in the world we live in seems a little strange and I think your point about that's making it fair for Arteta who used the word embarrassing is a good one but I think overall I think he's slightly out of line and I think then when we fold in my next point which is the club statement which came out yesterday which again on the desk with sometimes sitting around thinking oh it's a Sunday when well, it's Nottingham Forest against Aston Villa and Luton Liverpool they're not the big Sunday games where are we going to get our big story from obviously we were proved wrong in terms of the fixtures but then that statement came out and Joe my colleague said great there's your back page story thanks <laughs> Arsenal you look like right idiots now but that that to me didn't almost didn't help because the kind of doubling down it was a bit that to pathetic. me is also embarrassing Gregor it was mm. pathetic I think I think Arteta's was pathetic too I honestly do I agree about the, the kind of emotion this has been something we've said of Arteta in the past. They they can be too emotional, and the whole, you know, it, he was talking about. Yeah, I think he said that we we after the West Ham game, they they lost in the cup, obviously three one. So there's two defeats in a week now. So part of you thinking 
is he is he doing this to deflect away from the fact that they've lost two games in a week? But it was too much for that, so I think you can consign that idea. And then he was talking about how we we spoke for forty eight hours after that game that we didn't compete. So he has it, you know, there are enough kind of little signs to suggest that he's getting his team in a in a state that is not conducive to them winning the game or playing the way that they play best to win the, win a game of football. Um, and I, again, when you add up all those those little things, he was given ample opportunity to explain further why he thought it was embarrassing as well and he never took it he just said there's there's many reasons well get, explain them I hope he's asked that again in the next press conference I hope he's asked maybe we'll send you C- to can ask you, them can you please explain what you think is wrong here I know you could say you think the ball's out we don't know that Mikhail we don't know that ok we think it, it might have been offside it might have been we don't know that so the na- it's a foul. That's one thing you could say, and that's just someone's opinion. It's subjective, but that's all VAR. That's all VAR has done. We've said this numerous times. All it has done is open up new layers of subjectivity, and for that reason, we shouldn't have it. Alison Rudd, I'm surprised. I must say, knowing you as I do, that you haven't chimed in with it. I told you so at some point. Given that this has been a theme of your assessment of Mikel Arteta as a manager for a long time, has it not? Has it not? You know, Indeed, you, not no, only, you know me too well. You have, you've not only yes. been defending him and his views on VAR, but you have not jumped in on Tom's excellent analysis earlier and said, "Told you, I told you this last year," which you did. You yeah. absolutely did. Yeah. Well, I I do. What I wonder happened was they were without Erdegaard, who keeps a incredibly sensible almost poetic charge of Arsenal he is he's he's their heartbeat and makes sure they're all very grown up you mentioned Tom they're a young team he makes sure they're grown up and without him there I think I think I think Tom's right I think they thought oh we have to compete in terms of other things now if Odegaard had been there they could have won on superiority of football but Newcastle have this thing, don't they? They have this this thing where they just go at games like it's the very last game in the universe and they're very pumped up, very physical, very quick, very passionate. And I think he felt without Erdegaard there, they were they were gonna lose in terms of just not being at it enough and he he, he switched the dial too far so that they they couldn't control it. I and you wonder what he said to Havertz to make him make that challenge. Has he been asked to prove himself? Because he has a very diffident um, body language, Havertz. I'm sure he does care, but he looks like he doesn't. He sort of wanders around looking slightly aimless some of the time. And that gets... that when, it, when, you don't get, when you're not productive, then it's misinterpreted. And I think Arsenal fans are thinking, well, what are you bringing to the team? And why is our manager continuing to pick him? So he's been told, show that you care. So how do you show that you're, you care if it's not your natural way of holding yourself you just dive in on a ridiculous tackle to show that you care and then that all that does is raise the hackles at St James's Park and and at that point you have lost the game the goalkeeper thing is interesting as well because yeah. the whole idea with it bringing in David Raya was to supposedly increase the performance of two goalkeepers by having the competition and the rivalry but I think we've basically seen this week Ramsdale playing in midweek in that defeat to West Ham Rio this weekend and recently that you've basically got two good goalkeepers who are now playing worse because of because of the pressure because of the hype because of the tension and I don't know about you but I'm seeing suddenly Arsenal having to deal with a lot more kind of scrambles and in the penalty area a lot more mess and chaos in around their six yard box than they had, than they had last season and I think that comes from from a nervousness you know a lack of certainty a lack of 
chemistry and connection between the defence and the goalkeeper. And I think what Arteta was trying to achieve, let's see, I mean, maybe, you know, David Rea establishes himself and becomes a great goalkeeper. But at the moment, that has become a problem that wasn't there. And just, just on the club statement, by the way, in Spain, this happens all the time now because, well, I think in England it, it was never a thing. But we've had now with, with Liverpool, which I think was probably the first one, maybe. I mean, I can't remember one before that. But what it does is it opens a can of worms, you know, and then every, every club thinks, well, if Liverpool did it, we've got to send out one this week to make sure that we are saying that our decision was just as bad. And the next week there'll be someone else and saying, well, if we don't publish a statement, then everyone's going to think that we're OK with it. And in the end, what happens is every week there's a club basically saying, we're unhappy with the referee, we're going to threaten legal action, it's not good enough, and it becomes a huge thing. And, it, and all it does, by the way, which is what it's done in, in Spain and in Europe, where you have these ridiculous official statements coming out from club every week, is it fuels this sense of conspiracy it fuels this idea that the referees don't have any authority and they're doing doing things wrong not only by accident but actually officially because when the clubs start talking about it officially it becomes a, an actual kind of much more explicit thing and it was obvious that, that was going to happen when Liverpool did it and it's happened now what one or two weeks later Arsenal are doing it and it will happen now for the rest of the season I just wanted to raise one uh, start from Bill's column which blew my mind oh <laughs> over the last 20 league games, so the equivalent to just over half a season, Manchester United have won more points than Arsenal. Does that blow anyone else's mind? Say that again. Over the last 20 league games, so the equivalent of half a season, Manchester United have won more points than Arsenal, 37 to 36. No, just it, doesn't, given... it doesn't blow my mind because Arsenal threw away the title, didn't they? Uh, uh, but still, still in a, it, well, as, a, as a surface level factor, yeah, that, that, it's quite strange. I know it kind of doesn't mean anything because it crosses two seasons but yeah. that's amazing one other thing look, we, we can't ignore Newcastle here come on I'm, like, listen I didn't want to say it that's always my line listen <laughs> uh, tip of the hat to Michael Walker here the journalist a tweet he, he tweeted after this game of the 15 players used by Newcastle United in this game 8 were signed by Steve Bruce Rafa Benitez or Alan Pardew and Sean Longstaff came through the academy this is now their t- team for, from last season like the, all the players they signed are injured or suspended or whatever. Uh, this was his two-year anniversary, Eddie Howe. Like whatever we say about it, and I know Alison, we always raise this and we should, but the job Eddie Howe has done is without, it's unrivaled in those two years in the Premier League. It's, if you're going to sports wash, you may as well sports wash well. Okay, but the sports washing bit is like the the washing of the players in the squad. <laughs> 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 it's not really had much effect on Eddie Howe's team. That's all I'm saying now. This is this is an incredible job. The, the fourth fourth home game game in a row without conceding a goal, four wins. The, that that place. We're speaking about a lot of stadiums that are you know kind of really important for teams. That place is the hard probably the hardest place to go now in the Premier League. Eddie Howe definitely deserving of some praise, Gregor. And you can read more amazing stats and facts from Bill Edgar in his column on the Times website now. But we want to finish with another manager who deserves praise and has got a lot of it. Emma Hayes, uh, Molly Hudson writing this morning that the USA job is the only way to step up from Chelsea. Um, The inspirational manager's decision to leave West London next summer is being compared to the end of Sir Alex Ferguson's reign at Manchester United. I've got to say, this was one when that's the story kind of came out that Emma Hayes had decided to leave. Um, she hasn't actually confirmed whether or not she's going to take the job of the United States women's team or not, but we believe that that might be the only vacancy big enough for her. This did feel like a huge moment for the women's game. She has been such a kind of beacon of not only success on the pitch, but in terms of her punditry during the international tournaments when people are going, wow. This is amazing. She, her punditry is way better than everyone else's. This is she actually knows her stuff and prepares and things. To lose her from the the English game and to lose her from the women's game in this country is a big moment, isn't it, Alison? It's a slap in the face for 
English, the FA, actually, because she was the obvious choice to be England women manager. I mean, you know, she was obvious, obvious, knew what she was doing, very successful, on a wonderful trajectory. I remember seeing her early in her career at Chelsea and how she's progressed since then. Just, just she, she has a, a desire to learn and learn and learn. But she, she said, no way do I want that job. No way do I want to have that sort of exposure that the media give you and the way the whole thing is handled. At not being with the players often enough to be the international manager. I don't want that. Don't want that. And yet she's prepared to do it overseas. It seems which implies that they've given her reassurances that the English FA cannot. So I do I do feel it's a bit of a, a slap in the face for, for the, the way that the FA run things slightly. And, yeah, I mean, she is the only manager anyone who isn't all over football will be able to say is a manager of a women's team in this country. She is, she's famous and she's done it by hard graft and really working at it and being a superb, man manager she's just very good at, at get, getting the right people into to Chelsea uh, whether they're coaching staff or the playing the players she she wants the to, to be a you know the right mood the right commitment and so on and I think everyone will hope she can win the Champions League with Chelsea it's the one trophy she's not won and it'd be a great send-off for her to go out with that um, don't know if she will be able to do it or not but that would be very fitting for someone who's who's just just devoted herself to um, enhancing enhancing the women's game but it does make me th it just feel slightly odd that she was so adamant she was not interested in the the national job but she she will go to america yes well we'll see what the future holds for emma hayes and i would recommend you reading molly hudson's piece because it not only sums up this moment for her and the women's game but it also outlines what a brilliant success she has been at Chelsea, Tom Allen, Alison Rudd and Gregor Robson, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you too for listening. We will be back on Thursday to discuss the latest Champions League action. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.